Good morning. Um, so today's reading is from Luke chapter 13, and we're reading verses 31 to 35. So I'll just give you a few minutes to find that. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, let me add my welcome to Nathan's, and particularly um, if you're here, it's great to be here, isn't it? Uh, this first Sunday uh, that we're using this building uh, after uh, lots of preparation. And can I welcome you at home if you're uh, looking online? It's uh, great to have you join us. And also uh, for you in the Link building, uh, there are some parents and children over there, quite a lot actually, and uh, we're really thrilled that you're able to be part of this uh, meeting uh, by looking on video. And if you are over there, I want to give you two things to listen out for this morning, and that is to listen out particularly for two animals uh, that Jesus mentions in this passage to help us to understand what he's saying. Well, let's uh, turn back then to that uh, passage that Rachel read uh, in Luke chapter 13, and you'll find an outline uh, on the inside of the, the sheet as well. And if you've had uh, your eyes and ears open at all uh, for the last few decades or for the last few years, you will know, I think, that many people around us have a problem with Christian belief. Many people around us have a problem with Christian belief. We know that, don't we? Whether you're a convinced Christian who tries to share your faith with others or you're just an interested observer, you'll know that there is a significant uh, difference between what our society around us holds to be true and what we are taught in the Bible. There is a tension. If I can put it this way, there is a tension between what we believe in here and what the world believes out there. There is a conflict and sometimes even a hostility. Why is this the case? Why do Christians no longer feel comfortable in the public square? Why do we often feel that our voice is not taken seriously, that our views are actually disliked by many in our society? Well, just think about some of the things that the Bible teaches and how those things are so profoundly different to what people believe in the world. For example, the Bible teaches, doesn't it, that God made all people precious, that life begins from conception, that life is under his sovereign control. That simple biblical belief puts you at odds, doesn't it, with the prevailing presumptions about the beginning and end of life, with abortion and euthanasia and things like that. The Bible teaches us that God made us male and female, and those sexes are fixed and they're different. And those differences are to be celebrated and welcomed. And that simple 
biblical belief puts you at odds with the current obsession of our liberal elites around gender and identity. The Bible teaches that God made sex for marriage and that sex outside marriage between one man and one woman is actually wrong and harmful and against God's plan. And that simple core biblical belief puts you at odds with, well, with pretty much everybody in our society. The Bible teaches that God created this world from nothing. That every detail of his creation is a result of his designed will. And that puts you at odds with evolutionists, with many scientists, and with almost all of academia. And did you know that the Bible teaches that angels are here right now? In the gathering of the church, we've been thinking about this with the trainees this week in our church, the angels are here with us in the gathering of the church. This invisible supernatural world overlaps with ours. And that puts you at odds, doesn't it, with secularists and materialists. So there are a few examples of some of the significant things that the Bible holds to be true that Christians believe that actually... As we start to talk to people, we realize the majority of people around us don't agree with. No wonder one member of our church said to me this week that when they head out to work, they sometimes feel that they are heading out to wolves and they don't work in the Lakeland Animal Safari Park. No wonder another member of our church said to me this week that when she stands up for biblical truth at school, she feels utterly on her own. There is not one single person in her peer group who shares her view of the world. But I want to suggest this morning that the things I've mentioned, by way of example, issues of life and death, sex and gender, creation, evolution, the invisible world around us, these differences, significant though they are, pale into insignificance compared to something Jesus has said in last week's passage. So have a look down at the Bible in verse 24, and can you see the problem? In verse 24, it's that word narrow, isn't it? In verse 23, Jesus was asked by somebody, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And look at how he answers them. Verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And I want to suggest that that is the problem. This narrowness, this exclusivity, that is the problem that our society has, our friends and colleagues, and the modern Western world in general. That's the reason that Jesus is disliked. Because think about what people hear by that word narrow. Jesus says there's only one way into the kingdom of God, and it's him. He is the narrow door. And people say, how intolerant, how arrogant. What are all the other religions? What about Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad? Why is Jesus so special? Jesus says that door is only open for a limited time. If you've not put your confidence in him by the end, it's too late and there are no second chances. And people say, how unkind, how unloving. To slam the door of the kingdom in people's faces before they've had a chance just because they haven't become Christians. And a few verses later, as we saw last week, he warns his hearers that there is a terrible final separation. Once that door is shut, 
between the saved and the condemned, that there is everlasting joy for those who are inside the kingdom and everlasting regret for those who are outside the kingdom. There is an eternity of heaven and there is an eternity of hell and the difference is what you make of Jesus now. How unfair, how unjust. So when that phrase, narrow door, enters the ears of modern secular men and women and boys and girls, what do they see? They see a picture of Jesus and a picture of God that is narrow, mean, harsh, intolerant, unjust. And of course that picture is contrasted with the way we like to see ourselves, which is broad-minded and generous and fair. Are you really saying, my humanist neighbour said to me, that if I don't become a Christian... God will condemn me to an eternity in hell? What a despicable religion. What a hard-hearted, narrow-minded, sadistic, bigoted God. Well, come with me to the final passage then of Luke 13, which happens to be Jesus' last word to this big crowd of listeners who have been following him since chapter 9. And what we're going to see in this important little passage is what that narrow door looks like from Jesus' own point of view. So you notice how deliberately Luke ties this passage to the previous one. See that little phrase in verse 31, at that time, or literally at that very hour. In other words, someone asked the question back in verse 23, are only a few going to be saved? And the answer actually comes in two parts. The first part is what we saw last week, the human view that we saw. Make every effort to enter the narrow door. But now comes the second part of the answer. And this part of the answer shows us the narrow door from Jesus' point of view, from God's point of view. And what this is going to do for us is actually provide us with a different view of God entirely. We're going to see that the narrow door that sounds so objectionable is in fact a picture of God whose love and compassion and kindness and grace and mercy and tolerance is so broad and deep and beyond understanding that it's given this particular striking image that we'll come to a little bit later on. And as we see this, I hope as Christians we'll be encouraged to share that love of God with those around us. And if you're not convinced this morning, can I ask you to pay particular attention and allow me to show you the character of God is different to what you may have thought. And I hope that any hostility you have in your heart towards Jesus Christ will melt away this morning and you'll come into the kingdom because the door is wide open. Well, that's what we're going to look at. Two simple points then. Firstly, God's sovereign grace. And then secondly, how that sovereign grace is met with man's stubborn resistance. So God's sovereign grace, first of all, in 31 to 33. Notice how the passage begins. With a striking and uncomfortable message. Verse 31, at that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. 
by any accounts, this is a disturbing message to receive. How would you feel if someone sent you a message that somebody powerful wants you dead? If you stay on this current course, they're saying, King Herod will have you killed. We don't know why the Pharisees warned Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us, so we don't need to worry about that. But he does give us some clues as to why Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Firstly, notice that word translated want in verse 31. It's a word that indicates a wish or a will or the heart's desire of a person, and it occurs three times in our passage. It's the key word in the passage. We see it here with Herod. We see it again at the end of verse 34 with reference to Jerusalem not being willing. And we see it in between in verse 34 with reference to Jesus translated as longed. Same word three times. What Herod wills, what Jerusalem wills, and what Jesus wills. In other words, the passage is built around a conflict of desires. Jerusalem and Herod both actually want the same thing. They want Jesus dead. And Jesus himself wants something else. Well, what is it then that Herod wants? Let's press this a little bit more. What is his desire? Why does he want to kill Jesus? After all, if you look at it, Herod very much looks like the first of verse 30, doesn't he? And Jesus looks like the last. What could Herod have against Jesus? Well, Luke actually tells us, I think, pretty clearly. The first clue comes back in chapter 3, when John the Baptist rebuked Herod for his adulterous relationship. And what did Herod do? He put John in prison. There is a great picture, isn't it, of the first treating the last as he wants to treat him. And then in chapter 9, at the very moment Herod is told about Jesus, another prophet of God, we learn that he had John beheaded. There's no more clear a signal, is there, that you want to silence somebody than chopping off their head. In other words, Herod is a man whose wish is to kill those who speak the word to him. Herod killed John because he wanted to live life his own way, not God's way. He wanted to have that adulterous affair. He didn't want God's word condemning him for it. And so he got rid of the person who spoke God's word to him. It was really as if he didn't want God to exist. Herod wanted to live in a world where God was not in charge because Herod wanted to be in charge of his own life. He wanted to be the king of his own little kingdom. And this is why Herod wants to kill Jesus. Because we know he is somebody who does not want to hear the word of God. He wants to live in a world where he is king and not God. Now I don't know what you think of Herod at this point. But I guess most of us would be pretty keen to distance ourselves from that kind of man. And most of us don't have the power to get rid of God or kill his messengers. But I have to say, if you think about it, we're not that far away from Herod in our heart of hearts, are we? Because I know, and I think you know, that there are times when actually we do want to live our own way and not God's way. We don't want to hear God's word. We want to be in charge of our world. But unfortunately for Herod, that desire now clashes with another. Look at verse 32. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons 
and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. It's very rare for Jesus to throw an insult at somebody. By calling him Fox, Jesus is calling Herod out as two things, as on the one hand cunning, but also powerless. I think in our culture, in our children's stories, foxes are are cunning and crafty, aren't they? But they're not so much powerless. But in the first century, foxes were cunning, but they were also vermin. I think the closest we would have is to call someone a rat. Sneaky, cunning, but also ultimately powerless. So by calling him a fox, Jesus is actually saying... We can see what Herod looks like to the human eye. He looks like one of the first in verse 30. He looks like somebody who has power, but actually he's powerless. Why is he powerless? Because he hasn't reckoned with the determined will of Jesus. See, Herod wants to kill Jesus. The Pharisees say, if you keep going down this road, Herod will kill you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. He has no fear of Herod whatsoever. Jesus' death is going to be according to his own plan. And nothing and no one will prevent him from carrying out that plan. Well, what is the plan? Well, look at verse 32. And I think here we have a very, very clear mission statement of Jesus in this context. In verse 32, he describes the plan, not in terms of three literal days, but just something that is mapped out ahead of time and he'll not be deflected from. And if you look at it carefully, you'll see the plan actually has two stages. Stage one, Jesus is going to continue to do what he's been doing so far. He's going to drive out demons and he's going to heal. Because those are the things, as we've seen, give a taste of the kingdom of God. So here is a a calling card, a a business card, a, a, a sample. Or as we saw a few weeks ago, the little show home on the housing estate. Here is what it's going to look like when the kingdom comes. No demons, no evil, no sin, no sickness, no suffering, no death. That's stage one, a glimpse of the kingdom. Stage two, notice, he's going to reach his goal in Jerusalem. That's when the kingdom is going to come once and for all. He's going to open the door, as we saw last week, to that great feast with people from all nations streaming in. But how is he going to do it in Jerusalem? What is he going to do when he gets there to bring the kingdom in? Well, here's the great surprise for those listening, for the Pharisees, for Herod, for the crowd. He's going to bring that plan to a climax, to a culmination through his death. He's going to deliberately, intentionally, willfully, in his own time, not as a victim, But as a volunteer, by offering himself up to the execution of a Roman cross, as the last of those who come from God to speak his word. Look at how certain he is in verse 33. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And there's some very strong language in there, the must and the surely. It's impossible, he says, for this to happen any other way. 
the climax of Jesus' work, as Becky reminds us in that children's talk, the climax is not a celebration or a coronation or a revolution, but a crucifixion. The thing he's been speaking of since chapter 9. This is what must happen to restore a broken world, to open heaven's door, to make it possible for people from north and east and south and west to come into the kingdom of God. And so what are we looking at here? Well, last week we saw how good it is that there is a door at all. There is a way of salvation. But now we're looking at this door from Jesus' point of view. See, Jesus did begin broad, didn't he? The Bible tells us he is the creator of the universe. He's the eternal son of God. So he began very, very broad. But he chose to narrow his life down. When he was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. He narrowed his life as he lived as a man, constrained and suffering. He narrowed his life as he was mocked and despised on the road to Jerusalem by the very people who should have welcomed him. He narrowed his life in his trial, handcuffed to a soldier on each side. The one through whom the universe was made narrowed his life by being nailed to a cross. The creator of the world narrowed his life by being taken down from the cross and placed in a grave. This is the narrow door from Jesus' point of view. Jesus narrowed his life to death on a cross so that all who come through that door can broaden theirs infinitely in the kingdom of God. That is the narrow door. The death of Jesus on the cross, the way open to the kingdom of God. And so notice with me how this changes the view of God that I mentioned before. When that word narrow enters the ears of many, many modern Western people, we hear this as unfair, as unjust, as intolerant. As if God has made it deliberately hard to find the way into the kingdom. Or you've got to kind of squeeze yourself. You know those stone styles you go in the Lake District in the stone walls where you kind of, you know, you have to take your rucksack off to kind of squeeze your way through. Or maybe a kind of a treasure map or or, or a geocache uh, challenge or something like that where it's, it's really, really hard to find. Only clever people can find it. Or only people with this mysterious thing called faith can get in. And we end up creating this picture of God who is unwilling and unloving and unfair. But when you see the narrow door from Jesus' point of view, you realize that the narrow door is there because this was the only way that anybody could enter the kingdom. The narrow door is there because in his death on the cross of the forgiveness of sins, and there was no other way for God to bring anyone into the kingdom at all. And so if you think about it, How outrageous of us to suggest that God has been somehow less than generous, that the door is too narrow, or that we could, as one of the children in church put it last week, work our way to the back door and kind of find our way in that way. How ridiculous to suggest that we are seeking God and he has made it hard for us. 
The very reverse is the truth. Because as we'll see in the next section, where the sovereign grace of God comes to us, it is met with man's stubborn resistance. And that's our second point. The sovereign grace of God is met now with man's stubborn resistance. Well, look with me at verse 34 then. Where Jesus now begins to speak in the language of this last Old Testament prophet. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Notice again the clash of wills at work. First of all, let's begin by thinking about what Jesus wants. How does Jesus speak now with the voice of God to the nation of Israel? Well, look at what he says in verse 34. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? Jesus longing for his people. His compassion, his love, he likens to a mother hen gathering her chicks under the safety of her wing. And he says he's often felt that way. What does he mean by this? Why does he use that image? Well, it's a nice image, isn't it? But it's more than a nice image. It actually takes us back to the Old Testament and the long and arduous story of God's salvation of his people through the whole history of Israel and his relationships with them. When surprisingly often, God is likened to a female bird in relation to her chicks. Sometimes God is like an eagle, rescuing her young and carrying them to safety. Other times he's more like a hen, wrapping her wings around her brood, giving them safety and protection and warmth. And as you read through that story of salvation in the Old Testament, you see this is what God has been doing often. He's been gathering his people through the centuries, gathering them through the exodus from Egypt. Gathering them across the desert into the promised land. Gathering them from their enemies, from exile, so they can live in the safety of his kingdom. And Jesus says, with the voice of God, how often, Israel, I have longed to do this. How often I have longed to complete that work of gathering. And now as he looks at the cross... He sees the moment is coming at last. As he's nailed to the cross in Jerusalem. Not as a victim of Herod or the Pharisees or the Romans or anybody else. But as the sovereign Lord full of compassion and kindness. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He is finally gathering his people into safety at last. He looks at the cross and says this is what salvation looks like for God. It wasn't as if God had one of many options. It was the only option. The absolute necessity of the willing sacrifice of his son as a substitute to bring back from exile those who most deserve judgment by giving up the life of the one who does not. He looks at the cross and says, here is how God comes near. Here is how God comes on eagles' wings. Here is how the kingdom gets open in an act of stunning generosity. 
And from then on, as the word of the cross, the gospel is preached to the nations, whether in a sermon like this or in a conversation over the garden fence, if you can picture it, God is stretching out his wings in kindness and compassion to gather his people in. Well, there's the first will. The will of God. How often have I longed? How many times has this story gone on and now it's coming to a climax and now we live in the world where this gathering continues as the gospel is proclaimed. There's the first will. The compassionate, kind, patient love of God. But now look at the second will. The will of Jerusalem. Who here at this moment in Luke's gospel, represent God's people, the nation of Israel, but by extension, the whole human race. All who, like Herod, prefer to live in a world without God. Look at their will. They are not willing, we read. They wish to kill him. The very one who has come to gather them, they wish to end his life. And so the grace of God is met with the resistance of man. And so it's very important that we see that these chicks that the hen is gathering are not cute, lovable, fluffy. They're not deserving people. Jesus is speaking about the very people who will reject him and murder him and resist his grace with all their hearts and wills. And so he comes to the final warning in verse 35. Look, he says, your house, your nation is left to you desolate. I tell you, you'll not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a historically significant turning point for the people of Israel. If they reject the grace of God as a nation, the house of Israel will be left in exile, left outside the kingdom of God, while others will stream in for the feast of the kingdom. And we'll see that beginning, if you look at some point, at chapter 19, when his disciples do recognize him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so who are those people who stream in from east and west and north and south? They are the ones who hear the word of God who recognize Jesus as the only way to God, who trust in his blood alone, enter the narrow door, and so come to him as gentle and welcoming as a mother hen. Well, let's conclude, and we'll conclude in the passage, but also this series. Over the last five weeks, as we've been looking at the crucial concerns of Christ, what matters to Jesus in this broken world? That's what we've been thinking about. And if you've got your Bible open, just have a glance back and see what we've learned. In verses 1 to 9, we saw that the kingdom matters so much that God sends warnings in the form of suffering. In 10 to 17, the kingdom of God is going to be a world that's completely healed. In 18 to 24, the kingdom looks small and insignificant, but in reality, it's enormous. And in 22 to 30, to enter the kingdom, you can only open, enter through the narrow door. And now we've seen what the narrow door is and why it's narrow. 
Because the narrow door is Jesus' death on a cross, which is not narrow after all, but wide and broad and deep as the rescue of a mother hen. And so I want to end with three implications for us to think about. First implication is this, that exclusion to the feast of the kingdom comes only by a stubborn rejection of the grace of God. Exclusion to the feast of the kingdom comes only by a stubborn rejection of the grace of God. See, who on the last day will be inside the kingdom and who will be outside? It's a question of of fairness, I suppose, isn't it? Well, one answer the Bible gives, of course, is those God chooses. The Bible teaches the sovereign election of God, that he chooses those who are his. But on the other hand, here is the free human choice. An open invitation for anyone to come into the kingdom. Is the door narrow? Yes. Because the only way to salvation is to put your trust in Jesus. Does that mean only a few will be saved? No. Because people will come from east and west and north and south and take their places in the feast of God. Is there any man or woman or boy or girl on the face of this earth who is excluded or uninvited or unwelcomed or unqualified? Certainly not. The only people who will be excluded are those who have stubbornly resisted the grace of God who have, as someone put it, stepped over the crucified body of Jesus to put themselves outside the kingdom. J.C. Ryle, the former bishop of Liverpool, says this, the promises of God are wide and broad and general. The readiness of Christ to save sinners is unmistakably declared. If we die in our sins and go to hell, our blood will be on our own heads We cannot blame God the Father, Jesus the Redeemer, nor the Holy Spirit the Comforter. Our salvation is holy of God, but our ruin, if we are lost, will be holy of ourselves. In other words, we can never turn back and accuse God of smallness, of lack of love, of lack of compassion, of lack of opportunity. And we must never play down the seriousness of the reality of judgment that Jesus came to save us from. No one speaks of hell more graphically than Jesus. No one speaks of judgment with more compassion and more longing. Exclusion to the feast of the kingdom comes only by a stubborn rejection of the grace of God. And therefore my second implication is this. Enter the narrow door now by trusting in Christ crucified before it's too late. Enter the narrow door now by trusting in Christ crucified before it's too late. If you're not a convinced Christian this morning, I want to address you particularly, and you're very, very welcome. We love welcoming people to our church, whether you're online or in here or in the link room. We are thrilled that you are listening to God's word with us this morning. I ask you to keep on doing that. But if you're not a convinced Christian, can I ask you in the week ahead to reflect clearly on the reason that you're not. Perhaps it's a lack of evidence that you feel. But just think about the evidence that you do have. You live in God's world which tells you to bow to your creator. You've been given a conscience which 
tells you that you're out of step with him. You've got the witness of his people, churches and Christians all over the world. You've got the word of God written clearly in the Bible. And now you've heard this morning that Christ has stepped into the world and died on the cross for you, for your salvation. You've heard of God's love and his compassion. You've heard that his wings are stretched out, ready to gather you in for all eternity. So what evidence have you got? I would say plenty of evidence. What reason have you got for resisting? Ask yourself that question during the week. And can I urge you to enter the narrow door by trusting Christ crucified before it's too late? And in a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer that will enable you to do that. And our third implication is this. If you have entered the narrow door, then urge someone else to enter it this week. Can I say that particularly to regulars at Moreland's church family? Here is a gospel that has been given to us to share. And every time we share that gospel, here is God stretching out his wings of salvation to gather people in. It's not that we are seeking God, he is seeking us. And the way he seeks people is through his people sharing the gospel. And that's what he's doing now until the time that Jesus returns. So can I challenge myself and every member of the church this morning? If you've entered the kingdom, then let's try prayerfully to urge one other person to enter the kingdom in the week ahead. And I'm going to pray right now. And this is a great prayer. You'll see it on the screen. It's also on the sheet. A great prayer to pray if you want to enter that narrow door right now and spend eternity in the kingdom of God. I'll give you a moment to read it and then I'll pray it. And if this is the right prayer for you to pray at this moment, just echo it in your hearts and we'll all say Amen at the end. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry for resisting your grace and rejecting Jesus as Lord. Thank you for the wide open door to the kingdom, made possible only by Jesus' death on the cross. Thank you for Jesus' compassionate, patient longing for me to enter, made clear by your word. Please help me to follow Jesus from now on, however hard that might be, so that I may look forward to being with you in your kingdom forever. Amen.